Thanks for joining. The discussion here is going to look at how we go about establishing a pro-health attitude within schools. I know it's going to seem like we're going to ask the teachers to do a lot, more than what they might be capable of doing, particularly given the fact that we're already asking so much of the teachers and the educators within the school sites. I know it sounds burdensome, especially with everything that we already asked the teachers to do and all of the various things we expect from our educational system to throw onto it the idea that they have to somehow also teach about being pro-health. But the school and the school site offers the community an avenue to establish pro-health behaviors, pro-health lifestyles that can make the community better as a whole. It's not something where we're hoping to change the entire educational system. It's not like what we talked about previously about focusing on learning as opposed to focusing on testing is relates to education. What we're really talking about is we're talking about, okay, how can we better instill pro-health attitudes and pro-health lifestyles within the school system so as to better inform the students as to how they can be healthy without causing all of the adverse effects that can come about through poor uh, psychological responses, through peer pressure that might make some students have an aversion to healthy lifestyles, while at the same time trying to work with and show how we can use the school and the school site as a community resource to work with all of the other social and familial factors that we know impact aspects of non-communicable as well as communicable diseases. So let's go ahead and let's talk about that. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. So before we get into a lot of the, the details here, one of the things that we have to address is why are we focusing on pro-health at the school and how the pro-health behaviors within the school, within the school day, can be expanded to the community as a whole. It's the general focus that we tend to see within these ideas that we're trying to combat the rise of childhood overweightness, childhood obesity, that is tightly correlated with the ever-changing nature of our diet, the overconsumption of foods containing fructose, and an overall reduction in level of physical activity among school-aged children. A rise that has led to numerous issues that we see not within school-aged children per se, but in adolescents, young adults, adults, and older adults, based off of behavior patterns that are instilled and ingrained within the school-aged band of our lives. And the desired recommendations that we tend to see aren't focused primarily on being pro-health, but are simply on focusing on the ability to increase overall levels of physical activity throughout the day for the child through programs like uh, the Let's Move or the Just Play programs that we might see advertised, where the intentions happen to be Simply increased early physical activity will lead to greater use of physical activity later on in life. And by doing that, we're going to reduce the relative risk for developing many of the issues that we see coming about due to overfatness. 
But at the same time, the interventions tend not to actually instill a foundation on the individual to pursue lifelong exercise, lifelong physical activities, without the sense in some individuals of being coerced into doing so. And that's simply because a lot of the intentions of these programs do not take into account the self-selection patterns that even children have towards exercise that will lead to greater use of other pro-health behaviors by allowing them to have a positive psychological event to exercise, where we know that when we start having positive psychological events related to one pro-health behavior, we're more likely to have additional pro-health behaviors come about. And by doing this, we're able to combine all of the various types of pro-health behaviors that can ultimately lead to a reduced risk for development of many of the lifestyle diseases that we see set in within adolescence, young adulthood, and adulthood, as well as in older adults. We do know that for school-age children, there is a highly um, important generalized inverse relationship that we see between levels of physical activity and body weight. Where children who are normal weight tend to be more active overall than those who are overweight. And the apparent differences that we see tend to come about through um, the uh, psychological attraction that some have towards exercise recommendations, such as running around and playing on various uh, gym apparatuses in an endurance style of activity. Something that many of the children that would fit into the overweight classification don't tend to naturally want to choose. And so in order to get those overweight children to do things, we have to coerce them into doing those things without understanding that if instead of doing a coercion towards activity, we instead uh, utilize an attitude and a pattern of interactions that allowed the students to be exposed to various types of exercise, various types of activities that they can then self-select towards without feeling coerced into their participation. This becomes an issue. It becomes an issue because there's a, a pattern that is troublesome within most school sites where teachers and staff at the school site tend to project their biases towards students who are overweight, that they should be more involved with activities, even if it happens to be activities they would not self-select towards. Or there's a projection of biases that in order to be healthy, you have to do what I as an adult would be doing and I would self-select towards. This reliance on the antidotes becomes even more problematic when we start looking at it in terms of over-reliance upon what type of evidence I'm going to be using to support my opinions, where there is a high degree of confirmational bias that uh, comes into play, confirmation bias that we see uh, being projected in where I get my resources for information, and how I use those resources in order to inform in an 
educational setting, people under my kind of control, whether it is within a collegial relationship or within a, a teaching relationship, where even if I don't have the intent to come off as being authoritative, I am the authority or seen as being the authority within the classroom where students will the, indicate that the teacher says this. And when the teacher says this, it, become, it comes from a point of the teacher is the authority on the, the topic. And so what ends up happening is we can ultimately end up leading to multiple lines of confusion for the school-aged children as they get bombarded with different types of messages coming from different, different adults, all coming from a perspective of authority. Most of this is kind of reinforced by how these various authorities are picking their information to convey and how most of the information that we tend to get is coming from non-peer-reviewed, non-scientific, non-empirical evidence. We tend to pick up a lot of our information from various media sources, social media, multimedia, internet, or popular press, without taking a step back and looking, okay, what is the, what's the actual empirical evidence say about the opinions that are being presented to me? One of the things that people have, have asked about why I'm doing the, the podcast I'm doing, and part of it is to try to kind of cut through that and the, the BS that gets out there and not project, okay, this is what you should be doing. I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm not trying to say, okay, here is the program that you're going to follow because this is the program you need to follow. It's this is what the empirical evidence says about these topics. And it's not done in an, in an effort to sell, it's, an, it's done in an effort to inform. And it's done in an effort so that we can actually develop the pro-health communities that we need to develop in order to combat a lot of the diseases that we see inflicting harm on our society, particularly the, the non-communicable or the metabolic diseases that have become rampant amongst individuals within our population. And so when we start looking at what we should be doing, what we should, should not be doing within the school site as in terms of developing a pro-health behavior, for the student, we have to take a step back. We have to take a step back before we start getting into general recommendations and what the research says about those general recommendations. And it's a very important aspect towards any type of behavior within school-aged children, in particular, these kind of health behaviors. And that issue is the social and peer pressures. A lot of us tend to either not remember or choose to blind ourselves to the memories that we had as children about the ginormous pressures that we faced and that the children face currently in an attempt to appease their peers so that they can fit in. And for children who are already overweight, they face a collective social pressure from that stigma simply because they're overweight. 
And that's going to compound issues as to what is the appropriate type and level of activity that they should be participating in. And that's because based off of genetic and uh, psychological factors, most are by nature not likely to select activity patterns that the normal weight or the fit classmate might choose. And so they're not choosing it because they don't find it to be enjoyable. And when we don't present the aspects of here are all of the various types of physical activity you can participate in, those overweight children don't see the benefit, the psychological appeasement, the enjoyment of being active. And they are less likely to be active. That's why we see that kind of general trend within the correlations about activity and weight within the school-aged children. When we start to look at that aspect, one of the things we have to do when we start making these recommendations is that we have to kind of look at, okay, what's the perspective that we're presenting? Are we, pre are we presenting a perspective that is biased in terms of what we want to use as a, a treatment, put quotes around the, the idea of treatment here, as being better than something else? And so when we start looking, okay, how can we establish behaviors that are pro-health behaviors, we have to look at, okay, what would be the self-selected pattern that the children are going to select to, and that would serve as the best way to get the children and the adolescents and the young adults to be the physically active individuals that we want to follow a pro-health behavior. Because once again, if we're able to establish one pro-health behavior, the likelihood of having secondary pro-health behaviors coming in there gets exponentially more likely. And so we have that as kind of the caveat. Okay, why are we doing this? We're doing this primarily based off of the assumption that we're combating this overweight, overfatness, obesity issue in the long term by teaching pro-health behaviors within the school. But that's only one avenue or one aspect of the overall implications that we see for being pro-health within the school site. One of the things that tends to get kind of ignored when we start looking at this idea about pro-health and being active is the lack of awareness or the uh, Ignorance to how being active can actually improve academic performance, even though we tend to, particularly in the United States, focus on academic performance based off of how much time is being spent in instruction and then practice from that instruction. Without understanding that, the more active the child, particularly activity in which we don't have them have rigorous rules that they have to follow, where they don't have to constantly be remembering, okay, what are the rules for this specific thing? 
where we allow them to have free play, where we allow them to, to be quote unquote kids in this play setting, in this activity setting, where we use the activity to de-stress within the academic day, we actually see improved performance in all metrics. With this, and I, I don't like using the, the terms that get thrown around, but we'll use the terms that are thrown around, with this, with this epidemic rise in attention deficit and neuroatypical behaviors, particularly ADHD and OCD and anxiety issues, with this rise in awareness to these neuroatypical neurodivergent behaviors, neurodivergent patterns, what we see from the research is that individuals who have higher amounts of physical activity within a day tend to have better behavioral outcomes within the rigid setting of the classroom, where they have fewer um, distraction moments, when they have fewer outburst moments, when they have fewer uh, moments of dissidence. Where they are more open to other ideas, more open to freely accept opinions of others, when they are more physically active, and especially after periods of physical activity. Part of that has to deal with the fact that by doing the activity, we're able to normalize some of the neurotransmitters that are at play with these neurodivergent patterns. Part of it has to deal with reduction in stress hormones that reduces limbic system functions that allow for an uh, easement of a sense within the person that allows them, due to that relaxation that comes about from the easement, to be uh, more swung onto the stress continuum towards being unstressed that allows for limbic system patterning that maximizes the, the hippocampus and minimizes the amygdala that allows for better focus and better attention to what's going on as opposed to what we see when we have the swing in the stress continuum towards stress where we have lower hippocampal functions and more amygdala functions that triggers a loss of focus within the attention, where we're attending to everything, but we're not focusing on anything in the stress situation, as opposed to attending and focusing on what we need to focus on in the unstressed condition. And so we have those two factors that come into play as it relates to, okay, why do we want to set up pro-health behaviors? The first one is to look at the long-term impacts that pro-health behaviors have on the reduced risk for developing of the non-communicable diseases, the metabolic diseases that we see in adolescents, in young adulthood, and in adulthood spreading into the older adults. But at the same time, we're able to use our pro-health behaviors to offset some of 
the non-desired outcomes of having any type of neurodivergent patterning, the attention deficit issues, the OCD issues, the anxiety issues that children may express when they are not able to have a pro-health environment to function in. So we have all of those, those factors coming into play. But before we start looking at some of the uh, general recommendations, there's a couple of things that we have to further address that comes about from some of the stuff that we looked at in uh, research that was published in uh, 2023 about what we would recommend and how we would go about recommending the types of activities that we want to see within the pro-health. And then we'll come back and look at, okay, how can we actually use the school site as a pro-health uh, resource for the community as a whole? And so before we get too much into this discussion, there's a couple of points that we need to cover that kind of uh, impact how we go about discussing health, pro-health, and healthy lifestyles. And the biggest of these happens to be our internalized biases that we might have towards our personal preferences in regards to what is health, what is a healthy lifestyle, and how we can go about projecting a pro-healthy behavior. One of the things that uh, we pointed out in a study that was published in 2023 uh, indicated that there is distinct biases that most educators have in the elementary through high school uh, grade ranges as relates to projection of healthy lifestyles and preferences towards suggestions about how to go about being healthy, both to the students as well as to colleagues within the school site. With that, we have to understand that if I acknowledge the fact that I have biases in my projections, I'm more likely to have an open-mindedness to uh, working with others that also might have biases, as long as they also acknowledge the fact that they have their bias. So there's that caveat. The other thing that we have to address is the implicit uh, want to help the students be better, but a fear that what the educator, what the teacher, what the school site a school site professional might be able to offer is minimal relative to what the family household has on developing healthy lifestyles and being pro-health based off of the understanding of the cultural social norms that have an impact on behavior selection, which is very, very true. With that understanding, there's two things that we have to look at as it relates to what the school site, what the school and the school site have to offer to students and then to the community. For students, we have to remember is that they're gonna spend more time in aggregate, in total, with school professionals, educators, teachers, uh, paraprofessionals, school site, school site administrators, school site uh, workers, professionals, that by how they display their health and their healthy lifestyles will have as much of an impact on the students developing long-term pro-health behaviors 
as what comes out of the familial cultural aspect of developing healthy behaviors that impact overall physiology, that impact overall health in the avenue of the non-communicable disease, or the prevention mechanisms that we take as uh, adults and people who are modelers of healthy behaviors take towards preventative measures as relates to communicable diseases. The way that we discuss topics has a lasting impact on individuals, particularly if we happen to be in a position of authority or have a uh, kind of a idealistic viewpoint from a viewer standpoint, where the viewer is viewing us as someone who is a person that they should be listening to and a person is of respect and of uh, has knowledge that they can and should follow. And so when we're in that position of authority, we have to remember is that the way in which we present ourselves and the way which we present our ideas around health and healthy behaviors is going to impact what is being taken as, I guess the best way to say it, as gospel. And so what we have to remember is that, and I know there's a lot of what we have to remember here, when we discuss topics, when we model behaviors, the people that see authority within that person are likely to also model those behaviors or follow those modeled behaviors or listen with the messages being sent. Which means that when we start to approach the idea around developing a pro-health community, we have to come at it from an agnostic position where we cannot say we're going to be following what I follow in my own personal life as the only way to do this. And that's because we have that multiple factors that come into play as it relates to developing healthy behaviors. And while the familial cultural aspect of the individual kind of sets the foundation for how they might go about living their lifestyle, we have an, a chance to model other avenues to be pro-health. Within the school, this is one of the things that we pointed out both in the uh, survey paper in 2023, as well as in a meta-analytical review of intervention programs back in 2015-2016. What we pointed out is that the school and the school site offers the most logical spot within the community to establish the resources for being pro-health, the ability for students to have large amounts of activity, where students can learn about nutrition and various aspects of nutrition without necessarily having to learn about specific dietary protocols, what I like to think of as diet dogmas, but more the general abstracts about nutrition, such as how much of distinct uh, nutrients you need to have in a day, what are the various types of vitamins and minerals you need to have, what is the difference between things that are toxic versus things that are poisonous, what are the uh, types of nutrients that we need for fuel in order to give the body the energy it needs, what are the types of nutrients that we need in order to allow the body to grow and to mature. All of those things we have avenues for application within the school system, even if we're not going to specifically have nutrition classes or specifically have uh, health, physical, fitness classes, we typically don't see the generalized kind of quote unquote PE class until we get into higher levels of the educational system within the elementary and the high school avenues within the United States at least.
And that actually puts us at kind of a, a detriment in terms of establishing a pro-health uh, behavior and a pro-health lifestyle in the long term. When we start looking at what's taking place in the very early stages of physical activity and physical education in terms of being physically fit, in terms of having good uh, cardiovascular health, good metabolic health, good musculoskeletal health, we tend to focus the educational aspect of that physical education, not on the ideas of fitness, but on the ideas of learning distinct aspects of uh, sport culture, playing distinct sports, learning distinct avenues about various types of diseases that might come about more than we focus on, okay, how can we actually be healthy? And we miss a big window in developing those health aspects where we can focus on what some behavioral psychologists like to think about in terms of activity as it relates to uh, psychological growth, free play. And free play is a broad avenue that can allow students in early elementary education a window of opportunity, not just to play, not just to what a lot of people think about as quote unquote burn off extra energy, which is scientifically not possible, but to expend some of their fuel, to expend some, some energy, if you want to think about it that way, in just kind of playground play, playing on the swings, playing on the on the jungle gyms, on the slides, playing tag, playing, just playing. And when we have those avenues of outlet, two things can develop. The child learns how to use their body, which is one of the big aspects when it comes to physical fitness, is learning how to control the body so that you can better recruit the muscles you need to recruit so you can be better coordinated in what you need to do later on. But at the same time, what it does is it encourages the use of activity to learn social skills, to learn social psychological avenues of compromise, to be able to deal with adverse setbacks that without those outlets, does not give the students the ability to psychologically and cognitively grow within their social settings. And so when we start looking at early elementary avenues of pro-health, we have basic skills that we can develop. The basic skills that we can develop are generally around, okay, what types of foods can and should be eaten without discussing foods that should be avoided. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to set up scenarios where we instill that certain types of foods are forbidden as it becomes a, an idea that if it's forbidden, it's something that I might want simply because of the attractiveness of doing something that should not be doing. We have the avenue where we allow them to play, to learn how to use their body, to learn how to coordinate so that I can throw something, so that I can run, so that I can jump, so that I can kick, so that I can kick a ball, so that I can do a whole bunch of stuff that I might need to do. Later on, we start developing athletic skills, particularly if we're focused on the development of athletic 
endeavors or athletic skills for athletic endeavors. One of the things that uh, a friend of mine pointed out in terms of athletic development is that the more the early athlete had chances to do non-specific activities, non-specific play activities, the better athlete they became in the long term. And so this is where in the early elementary age range, Given the opportunities to play, the child should be allowed to play and not play with specific guidelines as to what they should be playing. Guidelines about what to kind of avoid in terms of possible injury risk without, once again, making it where what you're advising them not to do becomes a, a taboo idea that kind of makes them want to do the don't do that in terms of the, the play activity, but where it's non-competitive, where it's simple free play, where the, the children are allowed to select what activities they want to do without pressure, moving from that into the upper elementary grade range as it relates to let's develop this pro-health attitude within the school. Start focusing on, once again, the physical education, the physical activity part of the physical education into what the child would select to do. And this is where we have to remember, and this is where we have to worry about ostracizing a child and causing adverse responses to the pro-health behaviors that we want to instill. This is something where I had a conversation with uh, an acquaintance of mine, and they were kind of upset when I pointed out this idea that based off of the selection that a student has towards specific activities, we should gear physical education classes towards those activities with the understanding that the children that tend to have overfat issues, which we think of as kind of the, the, the students that would fit into the obese, overweight uh, level of body morphology, tend to shy away from a lot of the running around type activities is not that they all do it's just that there's a tendency to shy away from that because of a adverse event that took place at some point in time that either had a psychological effect on them or a physical effect on them that makes them not want to do those activities but they should still have avenues to be active that doesn't necessarily mean having to run around which is tends to be a lot of the physical activity ideas at times and this uh, acquaintance was, well, I don't want my child to be in the, and I'm going to use their phrase, the, quote, fat kid PE class, end quote. And so their quote is a overt bias that just because I'm selecting away from running around and doing stuff, I'm automatically going to be the, quote, fat kid, end quote. And that's not the point here. The point is to have a selection towards a specific style of activity, specific style of exercise that the child wants to do. And this goes into something that we pointed out in a review on coercion versus self-selection and something that uh, pointed out in how we can keep people from being yo-yoers is that if we give avenues of selection towards things that the person wants to do, they're more likely to do it. It's something that uh, researchers at the University of California, Riverside, pointed out back in the very early 2000s, 
that the there's a, a kind of a physiological and genetic component into selection towards endurance things and selection away from endurance things. And if I am selecting towards endurance things, I'm going to do those endurance things without basically being coerced into doing it. However, if I am not, whereas if I'm not genetically predisposed to that want for endurance activity, I'm going to self-select away from those endurance activities. But the problem is, is that what we have set up within our physical education, particularly within the early physical education, before we get into the high school level of physical education, is that a lot of physical education involves a large proportion of endurance activities combined with sports learning. That is learning sports specific skills for distinct sports that you're being taught. And so if I want the child to learn pro-health behaviors, I'm going to allow them to select pro-health behaviors that improves their level of activity and improves their psychological uh, drive towards health behaviors by allowing them that self-selection avenue. It's not where we're saying, oh, it's the, to once again, to use the acquaintance's phrase, the quote, that kid, end quote, PE class, but it's simply another PE activity that students can select towards. And this is where we now get the kind of old idea about types of activities that are not beneficial or can have harmful effects on children, where there's this old idea that doing quote unquote weight training has an an adverse effect on growth and development of a child where it will somehow quote stunt the growth or it will somehow quote make bone stop growing or will quote close the bone plate earlier and there's very little evidence to support that in the literature the forces that are being applied in weight training in lifting weights tend to be less than the forces that are exerted through simple play on a playground due to all of the various gravitational effects and gravitational loads on the body that can be experienced through running and jumping on playground, playground equipment or simply just play itself without necessarily looking at the playground equipment. But at the same time, utilizing weight training can teach the child how to better control their body in such a way that it strengthens their body and can help prevent some long-term health issues that can come about from not being physically active. And so that's the idea on the uh, on the how can we incorporate some of these aspects within a PE style integration into the educational system. And once again, we don't have to all be PE teachers in order to have this this understanding or this avenue of application. Would it be helpful to have PE teachers on campus? Yes. Would it be helpful to have PE teachers be willing to do group exercise stuff? Yes. The problem is, is that we seem to be hamstrung when it comes to budgetary restrictions in terms of having those professionals available to all of the schools and all of the school sites, which means that the regular elementary school teacher has to take that role on. And so how can we integrate activity into the general educational day without saying, oh, it's going to be involved with recess 
It's going to be involved with other things. It's going to take away from the normal activities that I'm going to have within the school day, particularly in terms of the kind of reliance upon needing to pass tests and the re reliance upon needing to spend so many minutes, so many hours doing specific topic educational activities. Is there a way that we can integrate these ideas about pro-health lifestyles and pro-health activities into other aspects of the educational system? And so we'll come back and we'll talk about that section as uh, we will also discuss how we can go about making the school site a community resource for everybody to be able to have a pro-health lifestyle. Thanks for uh, joining for this part of the discussion on utilizing the school to instill pro-health behaviors. Please make sure you're giving us those five-star uh, ratings. If you haven't already done so, please make sure you're subscribed with alerts so you get updates for when we're uh, putting out new material. Please make sure you're following on all of the various uh, platforms here on the podcast, on YouTube, as well as on Substack, and the short clips we're putting out on threads and on Instagram.